Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. in the book of Mark today, Mark 2, and it's a story that we're really familiar with. If you've been a Christian any length of time, you will know this story well. And I want to use this story, I'm asking God to give all of us a brand new lens to be able to view this story. Mark is one of my favourite Gospels, possibly because it's the shortest gospel, so it doesn't take so long to read. And, you know, as an evangelist, I will always encourage new Christians to read that one first. You know, don't start in Genesis, start in the book of Mark. Just get through the book of Mark. It's really quick, really easy. And it's like a really fast-paced, short, snappy um, kind of foundation and the overview of the life of Jesus. So I'm in Mark chapter 2, verse 1. It may appear on the screen. And I'm going to read it to you. It says this, A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralysed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get to Jesus because of the crowd... They made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the map the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralysed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit this is what they were thinking in their hearts and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, "Your sins are forgiven," or to say, "Get up, take your mat, and walk." But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, "I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home." He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. And this amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. And to be fair, nor have I. (laughs) But just to put this into a little bit of context, Jesus had come home, and he had got famous. You know, without the need for a social marketing, you know, strategy or a campaign, no fancy marketing or TV ads, he had become famous. Uh, He'd become known as the doer of miracles and as a teacher. And so wherever he went, crowds followed him. And so in this story, a large crowd gathers outside the house. And Jesus, like any good preacher, took the advantage to preach to them. You know, that's what he did. There's a crowd outside. I'm going to take this moment. Except that while he is preaching, there is a distraction. And I don't know what they did or how they reacted when suddenly the roof starts falling in. Like, you'd want to run at that point, wouldn't you? And, um, you know, the roof is moving and some bits are falling down and, and distracted, full stop. And here was what happens. We've got four men with a deep enough love for their paralysed friend 
who finds a resourceful way of getting to Jesus. They'd heard of Jesus, they'd heard of his fame and his work, and they knew that the only way they were going to get to see their friend healed was if they got him to Jesus. And what I love about this moment is that I don't know what the relationship is between that man and the, and the four men, whether they're physically related, you know, blood-related, or whether they're, they're just mates, but there's enough love within them, and there's enough crazy with all four of them, and there's enough compassion and enough faith that they were prepared to go and take the roof off of someone's house. That's kind of nuts, isn't it? And you can see, I hope, where I'm going here with this. The man could have been healed on any other day, but of course Jesus didn't have a PA or a calendar or a social diary where they knew where he was going to turn up and when he was going to turn up. They didn't know when Jesus was going to come back again, and so they took the opportunity they had to get their friend to Jesus, and they saw an obstacle, and they got past the obstacle and got to Jesus. So the men proceeded to lower their friend down, and then this exchange takes place, doesn't he? And Jesus, doesn't, Jesus does not ask him what he's looking for, but he simply pronounces, son, your sins are forgiven, which is a surprising comment for a number of reasons. First of all, Jesus, being a grown man, is talking to another adult in the way that a father talks to a child. That's a bit weird, isn't it? That would be, yeah, yeah, that's like me talking to Phil. Phil, son, your sins are forgiven. That's just a little bit weird. And yeah, I'm sure Phil would think that was weird as well. And also, I'm not Jesus or God. Um, But... If you're the reader or anybody else in the room, you'd think that, well, the guy's need is obvious, isn't it? Like, he's paralysed, he's looking for healing. And Jesus doesn't even address the healing. He says no, he just tells him that his sins are forgiven. And up until this point, (coughs) Jesus hasn't declared forgiveness over anybody when we read in the Gospels. At this point, he's only healed people. And more importantly... If this man was looking for forgiveness, there was a whole system in place by which he could receive forgiveness, and that did not include going to Jesus. If this man wanted forgiveness for his sins, he'd have to go to the temple. Like, there was a whole set of rules. He'd have to go to the temple, present himself to the high priest, make a sacrifice, do whatever he was told to do in order to get his forgiveness. So suddenly, in this weird moment where this man's been lowered down and people are watching, he is told, your sins are forgiven. And like that's not allowed. That's breaking the rules. Why is Jesus doing that? I mean, he must be a nutter because the only person that can forgive sins is God alone. So why is Jesus saying this? Jesus is beginning to reveal who he is at this point in time. And he's aware that the scribes, the intelligent people in the room and the people that know the law are there and they're outraged. Jesus' claim to be God, because that's what he's doing, is... um, It's like disregarding the temple. It's disregarding all of the rules. When you sin against somebody, primarily biblically, the understanding is that whatever the sin is, it's against God. And so for Jesus to forgive people of their sins would be like saying, I am God. Um, And like, you've sinned against me. 
And I haven't explained that very well, so the very best way I can explain this is like this. I've got two sons. I've got Noah and JJ. Noah is the older one, and then JJ. Noah is 22, JJ is 19. Sometimes they like to express their deep love for one another by fighting. <laughs> and they have proper punch-ups. It's quite entertaining sometimes. Sometimes my husband joins in as well. Um, they, but if JJ walked up to Noah and like bashed him on the nose and Noah's crying out in pain and he, he likes to make a drama out of it when he gets hit by his brother. He's really screaming. And I walk up and put my hands on Noah's shoulder and look at JJ and I go, JJ, it's okay, I forgive you. I can fully understand Noah going, Mum, what are you talking about? The pain would have been forgotten about. He didn't hit you, he hit me. Can you see what I'm, can you see what I'm saying? He's getting all upset because, because I'm offering the forgiveness. And here, Jesus is saying, I forgive you. It doesn't make sense to the people. But Jesus is revealing that he is actually God. And then there's that beautiful moment, that miracle, isn't it? It says, Jesus asks them, your sins are forgiven. So which says to them, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise, take up your bed and walk? It's a puzzling question, isn't it? Because it's got lots of answers. On one hand, since only God can forgive sins, it would seem to be the harder of the two tasks. One doesn't necessarily need to be God to work out miracles the way that one needs to be divine to forgive sins. But Jesus then says, which is easier to say, which would make, well, rise up, take your bed and walk more difficult. The forgiveness of sins is not something that you can see. So you could say that and nobody would know any different. But being healed is something that's immediately obvious. And uh, so Jesus reveals who he is by doing the miracle. What Jesus wants the scribes and the crowds to know is that he has the authority on earth not only to heal, but to forgive sins. So what does Mark want us to learn from this story? The big thing about this story that I, you know, there's there's several take-homes from this story. One of them is that Jesus knows our needs. He knows our needs more than he knows, you know, he knows our wants and he knows our desires, but he knows what we need and he gives us what we need. This man came, his obvious need was obviously physical healing, but actually his real need was the forgiveness of sins. Jesus provided the means of forgiveness through his death and burial and resurrection. Forgiveness for us today is not obtained by going to a priest or going to a special place of worship or by performing good deeds. Our status of forgiven is only given through Jesus. As you can tell, I am Indian and I was born in India and I was raised in a Sikh family. And um, I grew up as a Sikh, uh, becoming a Christian at the age of 12. Now that's a story that I'm not going to go into today. You'll have to invite me back so I can tell you that story. Is that okay? But I grew up with this very strong Sikh heritage and I used to observe my mum. And my mum was one of the loveliest women you could ever hope to meet. And if you ever went to our house, not only would you get fed really well, 
but you probably walk out with loads of other bits and pieces. And she was always at the temple and she was always serving and she would help anybody that she could possibly help. Because her mentality was, the kinder you are, the more you can do, the more you can serve other people, possibly you might get a chance of getting to heaven. And she never, I don't know where she was when she died, and that's another story. I can do that another day as well. But there was always that treadmill that she was on. She didn't know how many good works that she needed to do to achieve whatever it was that she needed to achieve in order to get to heaven. And here, Jesus, through his death, dealt with that. That it's not about good deeds. It's not about anything that we have done. But it's through everything that Jesus Christ has done. So when Jesus says that you are forgiven, you are forgiven even if you don't feel it. Even if you think, oh, he can't possibly forgive me for doing this or for doing that. Or I'm not feeling it today. Your status is that if you know Jesus, if you love Jesus, you are forgiven. Jesus paid the price. No matter how weak faith becomes, no matter how you feel unsure about it, your debt has been cleared up. Jesus shows us that our greatest need is the forgiveness of sins. It's not about our healing. It's safe to assume that the paralyzed man and his friends were rather surprised to hear Jesus say, son, your sins are forgiven instead of rise up and be healed. Because if you are incapable of walking today in this world, if you have to be in a wheelchair today in this world, it's not easy. But can you imagine what it must have been like in Jesus' time? There was no government health care, no provision, no three-wheeler, no wheelchairs. I mean, there was no desk jobs. You had to either, you know, farm or fish and go to the market. You were basically reliant upon your friends to be able, friends or family, to be able to help you if you weren't just disregarded and left outside the city. This man in this particular story, his consequences were dire and yet there was enough of a relationship with his four friends. And this is what I want to highlight today in this season. I often talk about being the best friend that you can possibly be. I genuinely believe that people are one to Jesus through proper, authentic friendships, one at a time. I love the big events. I love the, you know, the, the, the big rallies that we've had over the years and, and the stuff that we do at New Day, which I'm really heavily involved in. I love all of that. I love when, when crowds of people respond to Jesus and go forward. But I actually genuinely, wholeheartedly think that lives are changed when we connect with people and have proper, authentic relationships, which in the last two years has been really difficult. And I also worry and I'm concerned that because of what's happened in the last two years that we're still standing back from connecting with people that physically we're still sit back and actually that means emotionally we've become disconnected from people I watched that in my 19 year old son who you know at 17 when that's like your dream of going out and enjoying life and connecting with lots of people he's suddenly not able to and actually now that he's 19 and he's allowed to go out he's still not going out he's so conditioned 
to being at home. And I do wonder if that's happened to us as well, that we're so conditioned over the last two years that we've kind of stopped connecting. So my complete um, exhortation to you this morning is please go connect. Go connect. And I'm not talking about being the most popular person in Manchester or the most popular person at CCM. It's not about having hundreds of friends and the biggest Facebook group that you could possibly have. But it is about one life at a time. Just be friends with one other person. If you were to become more committed to one person, appropriately, obviously, in the next year, say by Christmas, and they got saved and were added, by Christmas, you wouldn't have enough room to be in this room. You would have to find another venue. That's all it would take. It's not going to take much for this room to double. And imagine if you did that again the following year, that, you know, the double number, then you're like quadrupled in two years. You'd have to find another bigger building. It is one connection at a time. But you know what? Being friends with people is a battle. We get offended. We get upset. We get hurt. We, we step back, don't we? Because we don't want to get hurt. Look at me like I'm... Yeah, yeah. And, um, and so you have to choose to stay committed and stay staying being a friend. I want us to respond to this. And, um, and one of the things that I want us to do is, um, I've got a couple of words of knowledge, but um, Hannah, have you got anything? Yeah, brilliant. Um, but one of the things that I want you to do is, is just as we begin to respond, is to begin to think of at least one person that you can commit to in the, the weeks and months ahead. One person that you're going to commit to pray for. One person that you're going to commit to developing a friendship with. One person that you're going to try and take the opportunity to explain who Jesus is when <coughs> that moment comes. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to do it right away at the first conversation. Friendships take time. They take effort, energy and commitment. But there will come a point when people will say to you, what is it? Why have you got that peace? How have you managed to do that? What is going on with you? And in that moment, you can explain who Jesus is. You can take their hand and put it in the hand of Jesus who puts it in the hand of God. Some of the stuff I've said this morning, um, you're like, Jazz, I've got no idea how to be a friend. I don't want to be friends with anybody. I haven't got space for anyone else in my life. My life is already busy. If that's you, I just want you just to really just look to Jesus now. And just confess that. And if there's a fear of talking about Jesus to someone that you already know, just confess that as well. And then I want to speak into that worry that says people won't like me. That no one actually wants to be my friend. 
but I'm really good at shallow friendships, but I don't want to go deep with anybody else. And those three things that I've just identified, I'm going to say, Father, come by your spirit now and speak truth into each of our hearts and minds. Father, I pray that you'd fill our hearts up with so much love and so, com so much compassion for at least one other person that we know. I just want you to begin to pray for at least one other person now that doesn't yet know Jesus and ask God for an opportunity to strengthen that friendship and an opportunity to share who Jesus is. That's your bit. That's your responsibility. The converting is God's responsibility. That's not on you. Your bit is to be faithful with the bit that he's called you to be. Holy Spirit, just come and begin to minister right across the room. Father, I pray for a, a rise in the whole area of evangelism in this church. But Father, this church would be a church that sees the brokenhearted come to know you that sees the poor come into relationship with you. That sees the marginalised come into relationship with you. To see the rejected come into relationship with you. Father, I pray that this would be a church that sees the middle classes and the upper classes come into relationship with you. Father, I pray for new, strategic, beautiful friendships to be birthed, even this morning, right across this city.